0: Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 13. And last week, um, actually the last three weeks, you got an opportunity to hear, I wanted to say, Bill and Ted. (laughs) It was an excellent adventure. (laughs) It definitely was. Um, Bill and Tim got a chance to go through uh, the life of Joseph, uh, Genesis chapter 37 to 50. They got a chance to talk about a lot of different things from Joseph and his life, and I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed some of the comparisons that were made between Jesus and Joseph. And so they got a chance to do that for about three weeks. And now these next two weeks, we're going to be doing some uh, looking over the reading that leading up to Easter. So for these next two weeks, uh, the reading this week will lead up to Easter, then the reading next week will cover Easter after So that's kind of where we're headed uh, for today's podcast. Um, I brought some materials as well. I just wanted to show you a few things before we get started. This is a great book, by the way, um, and I'd encourage purchasing this book. This is a great book. It's called The Final Days of Jesus. Uh, It's a short little book. It's an easy read uh, done by some great authors. But if you're looking for something um, for the Passion Week, um, this is a great book to pick up. And then we've talked about this at times. Uh, Here and there uh, a harmony of the Gospels because we're gonna talk about the Gospels today And this is a great book to pick up. This is called Christ Chronological Uh, It's done by Christian Standard Bible You can pick up a lot of different kinds of these harmonies of the Gospels, but this is a more recent one And so if you're going through the life of Christ or looking at some details like we're going to do today, sometimes it's good to pick up a harmony so that you can see how all four gospel writers talk about that event, because sometimes they don't talk about it or other ones do, and picking up a harmony like that will help you. And I'm sure that there's resources and things like that online, but it's always nice to have a book, I think, uh, to go to. So today we've got um, some reading related to the Passion Week, and I've tried to orient it so that... The reading that you'll do each day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday is related to the events that happened on those days of the Passion Week. So that's kind of where we're at. And we're going to start today in Matthew uh, 21. And but before we start, one other thing too, I have to mention this. The Wednesday's reading. So if you look at the reading for Wednesday, there was, there was a, I made a mistake. It shouldn't be Luke 13, 1 through 37. It should be Mark, okay? So it should say Mark 13, 1 through 37. Now, if you want to read the Luke passage too, go, go right ahead and read the passage. But it should say Mark uh, 13, 1 through 37. And I'll I'll reference that when we get to, uh, when we get to Tuesday as well. But let's start with uh, Monday. And Monday I've got listed here Matthew chapter 21. And I've got Matt McClay with me here. So that's a good segue, Matt. Matt, this is a familiar passage here about the triumphal entry in uh, Matthew 21 and uh I think this is the probably the classic passage that we all go to and read, maybe when we're reading um, through for the Passion Week. And, and what are some of the things that you get from this passage? Is there something that sticks out to you? And I know we've read this so many times before in our ministries, and, and probably I know I read this passage a lot as it comes up to Easter. But Absolutely. is there something specific here maybe that's grabbed your attention it's this the, time.
1: It's the Palm Sunday lesson. Yeah. for you know, back in the old days with Sunday school. Yeah, you know, we'd always have this this lesson. But it, this reading and I think all the readings that we're going to look at this week, yeah, you know, primarily they're historical. You know, they yeah. detail historical accounts and 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 we know that these events happen, but when we look into it and we see we, we see the characters. We see we see Jesus, we see his yeah. disciples, we see the crowds, we see the, the people who are crucifying Jesus, we also not only see how Jesus died but even in that story of the events leading up to the crucifixion and the crucifixion, it's it's kind of a microcosm of the reason that Jesus had to come and die. And yeah. in this this first section of reading here in Matthew twenty-one, you know, we see the crowd that that's worshiping Jesus or so they're praising Jesus, but they really don't truly understand who Jesus is and and why they're why they're worshiping him. I have underlined. Verse 10 of chapter 21, when he okay. entered Jerusalem, the whole city, yeah, they're praising Jesus. And it says they were stirred up. So there's a commotion. There's a clamor. They were saying, who is this? Yeah. So the question, what, the, the, the reason they were stirred up was not because they realized that Jesus was the Messiah. It was because someone was coming into the city that had a bit of a following. They wanted to know who he was. If you read the reaction, the crowd says this is the prophet Jesus, Nazareth of Galilee. And we know Jesus was a prophet, but yeah. he was so much more than a prophet. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God.
0: And that's and that's what they constantly thought, that he was a prophet. And they did give him the royal red carpet treatment, mm-hmm. I guess you might say, yeah. rolling out the palm branches and the palm branches kind of signifying that somebody special was coming. But yeah, I agree. I don't know if they really understood... Um, uh, that Jesus was proclaiming to be the Messiah, the King. Like you say, I think most people probably imagined him to be a good prophet, or not a good prophet, a good teacher, a prophet. And so they were accepting of that because the whole Old Testament is filled with prophets. So I wouldn't see any any issue there. But going from prophet to Messiah is a big step. Um Now, one of the interesting things about uh, the triumphal entry, and a lot of times you read it from Matthew, and this time I went over to the John passage, and it's not in your reading, but in John chapter 12, because John gives a little different perspective about the triumphal entry, and Jesus was trying to tell the people that he's come for a reason and for a purpose, trying to tell them who he was, but like Matt was (laughs) saying, they just didn't recognize it. But over in John chapter 12, and I want to read verse uh, 27 to you, Um, because he's coming to Jerusalem. This is the triumphal entry in John chapter 12, verse 27. It says this, Jesus says, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason that I came. He says, Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven. I have already brought glory to my name, and I will do so again. And when the crowd heard this voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken. Then Jesus said to them, This voice was for your benefit, not for mine. The time for judging this world has come. And he talks about when he's going to cast Satan out. So already as he got into Jerusalem, he already started telling them, this is why I've come, I've come to die. And if you read the rest of that passage, it also tells how he's going to die. He's going to die on the crucifixion. So even though he's telling them, I am the Messiah, I am going to have to die, they still don't believe it. They still refuse to accept. And even a voice from heaven, even God himself giving the voice from heaven, uh, approving his son, they they still think it's some some different omen. It's an angel or something else, um, you know. And then the Luke nineteen account tells us that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem as he enters in um, because he knows the um, what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen at the very end. Um,
1: Just a few, a matter of hours, I guess you could say. Even later, the city would turn against him. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's a reminder in our age. There's some people call it progressive Christianity, mm-hmm. um, true. Yeah, yeah but it's it's this de- denial of the deity of Jesus and, and, and saying that Jesus was just a man. that's not yeah, that that in, in a way is new, but it's really yeah that's, as that's, old as the time of Christ.
0: Yeah, that's old. I was thinking of the book of Colossians. that's always yeah. a Colossian heresy. Uh, and then when Paul would say, you know no, no, this is this is Jesus and He describes Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1:15. but yeah, they've been that was an early church. Heresy. They were denying the deity of Christ, saying that he really wasn't Jesus or he became the son later on or he really wasn't 100% God or 100% man. So, yeah, you're right. It's not a new thing. It's funny how these things just keep coming back around. Uh, So, sometimes when you read the old fellas that have been commenting about this, hey, they make sense, right? Because it's it's, it's come around, the pendulum has swung (laughs) back around. So, as you read Sunday, you know, that's Palm Sunday. We'll celebrate that. And uh, that's specific as the triumphal entry. And then you have some events that happen on Monday. And then the cleansing of the temple um, is something that happens. But then the reading comes that we have to Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 21, verse 4. Now, this is some of the um, debates and controversies that Jesus has with the religious leaders. Um, So as he's in the temple, as he's gotten to the temple, it seems like he's there every day, going back home, coming back to the temple. Now he has some interactions, or we call them debates, I guess, with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders. There's actually four different debates, if you were to look. But I think Luke only tells us about three specific debates that are given here. Um, And it just goes to show you that the, the religious leaders, again, are the ones that were causing the most frustration, the most constant—they were attacking Jesus. You don't hear about the crowds attacking Jesus. You hear about them wanting to heal them or wanting to uh, uh, be places so Jesus could teach and uh, things like that. But you don't hear a lot about the crowd attacking Jesus. It's all these religious leaders uh, that were attacking Jesus. So, and I think it's interesting as you read through that that section in Matthew twenty, or excuse me, in Luke twenty you find out the different groupings get together. Like one of the groupings, it was kind of weird. It talked about the Pharisees and the Herodians. Like I wonder what kind of grouping that was because these are guys who are like completely opposite. The Herodians followed whatever Herod did and the Pharisees wanted to be separate from the Roman government, but yet they come together for a common enemy. Um, to try to to try to find ways to get Jesus to say things that are not appropriate. Now, I have a favorite one of these that I'll talk about, but I wanted to give you a chance. <laughs> is is there something from this passage that maybe stuck out um, that you want to highlight? Well, it's interesting,
1: and, and and if you were to get a chronological Bible or or there something that that highlights Jesus's ministry chronologically, it's interesting to see how in, the increasing level of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, being desperate in the way that they challenge Jesus's authority, to the point. Uh, and and this is almost the last ditch effort. You can almost, if you read it and you you read the whole passage, you can almost sense the desperation in their voices because Jesus, you had an itinerant ministry; he'd come in and out of Jerusalem, but this time, you know, this Passover season, he enters to this. Throng of 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 praise and, and adulation and you you can sense their de- they they think they're gonna lose they're gonna lose control real quick if they if they can't publicly embarrass him or catch him in mm. one of these trick questions so like you said he, it's it's almost like waves of different religious groups take their shot at it and and you you almost wonder if if what if they're thinking well. The Herodians think well if if we can catch Jesus you know we'll be the ones that that got him right, yeah, and, right and then the Pharisees right. oh if we if we catch him yeah, you, know, we'll, like we'll have that, you know we'll have that merit badge of being the one that yeah you know, the, the one that took Jesus down but obviously they all strike out
0: I think John is the one that says like when he came in to Jerusalem um, the religious leaders were like they didn't know what to do they had no idea like what do we do what do we do of course they know what to do they're going to go attack him but at, at first they're like what do we do now in his controversies here, in his debates, there's four different ones, but I like the third one because the third one relates to the Sadducees, okay? Now, what you have to understand about the Sadducees is that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, okay? But they asked Jesus about the resurrection, which is kind of ironic, and listen to what it says. I'm reading from Matthew 22 23. It's different. I have given you the Luke 20 passage. I know I'm going back and forth, but some gospel writers, I like the way they say it better than others. Verse 23, it says, that same day, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees uh, who say there is no resurrection from the dead. And they posed the question, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Okay got that. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children, so his brother married the widow. But the second brother also died, and the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them. Last of all, the woman also died. Um, So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Now you think about how ridiculous of a question are you going to ask Jesus? So in essence, he's saying, uh, the religious leaders are asking, so whose wife or whose uh, I guess what I should say, this woman, poor, poor, poor lady, by the way, if this actually happened to her, this lady, you know, who's her husband in the resurrection? And, and, you know, Jesus pushes through all the gunk, and he says this. He says in verse 29, I like the way my NLT says it. He says, your mistake is that you don't know the Scriptures. Whoa. And you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now as to whether there will be a resurrection of the dead, haven't you ever read about this in the scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living and not the dead. Now, so what Jesus is doing, he's taking their crazy question about the resurrection. They're saying, "This is could this happen? And he's saying, listen, he, he turns it around and he proves the resurrection because he says, listen, when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, guess what? At that time, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had already, quote unquote, died. But he says God is the God of the living. So in God's eyes, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had not died because he knows that they'll be resurrected in the future. So he takes what he does. He takes that um, Uh, that complaint they had about the resurrection, that disbelief. And they ask him this silly question, and he turns the conversation right to the heart of the matter, which is the issue with the resurrection. And that last verse says, when the crowds heard him, they were astonished at his teaching. I think the other passage in Luke says, it's almost like the religious leaders were like, you know, good job, Jesus. You did well with that one. And you think, in the back of his mind, he's, he's thinking, these people really don't understand who I am. All they're concerned about is winning arguments and winning debates and winning political discussions. That sounds oddly familiar to today, doesn't it? But uh, that's some of the things. But that's one of my favorites. Anyway, I just wanted to share that one because I think it's so ridiculous. But yet, a lot of times today we get ridiculous questions uh, like that. And sometimes our job is to sift through that gunk. And the way we do it is is through the Word of God, for sure.
1: And I love how we got to the heart of the issue because the the Sadducees are asking a question about the resurrection but they don't even believe in the resurrection yeah, that's the irony of it all <laughs> uh, yeah but but they're 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 willing to not necessarily give give into there being a resurrection but they're willing to they're willing to play that side of it just that that's how desperate they are to trip Jesus up um, that they're asking questions about, about the resurrection. And Jesus is, like you said, Jesus' answer cuts through all that gunk because the Sadducees had been influenced by um, the Greek thought, the Hellenism, which yeah. a, a lot of them would believe. The, the Greeks believed that you, there, you became sons of, of God. You became almost a deity in and of yourself yeah. during your life on earth, and there was nothing after that. Yeah. And Jesus not only... Points them to that the resurrection is scriptural, but to that after the resurrection, we become we become. He says here equal to angels and sons of God yeah. after the resurrection. So he he critiques both of the with just a few sen-
0: sentences. Yeah, he has yeah. this way of just cutting through it. <laughs> that that's what yeah. I love about his his words. It's just you answer five questions with just one statement. He does uh, indirectly. He directly answers one question while he's answering four other questions indirectly. Uh, What every preacher dreams of being able to do with a sermon. You know, you're thinking about all the questions that people have as you're preaching that text, and you want to be able to answer them all, but do them effectively. And here's Jesus. He just, just, of course... It's because he's Jesus. Obviously, he's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man, and, and he has the ability to do these kinds of things. Um, but read those uh, through those controversies. There's, a, there's four of them total if you look in all the gospel accounts, and it seems like they do, as Matt's saying, get a little more desperate or get a little bit more extreme as you go through them. Now, one of the things that uh, I wish we had more time to talk about in the next passage, which is Mark 13, uh, that's, a, that's a whole... Uh, another ball of wax because Mark 13 relates to the Olivet Discourse, and that's Jesus teaching on end times events. And we don't have near the time to talk about the end times events, but I wanted to put it in there for you. And I wanted to put the Mark passage because it's the smaller of the two. The other passage is in uh, Matthew 24 and 25. That's the longer passage of um, the Olivet Discourse. And if you're ever reading through the book of Revelation, then you need to read through Matthew 24 and 25 at the same time, and you can see some parallels. But there are just two points that I wanted to make about this Olivet Discourse, because Jesus was leaving soon. He knew he was leaving. Of course, the disciples are still wondering where he's going. Uh, Jesus knew he was leaving. He wanted to give some instructions, or at least some teaching about what's going to happen in his absence. And so... The two things I wrote down was uh, this, that Jesus said the current generation will experience judgment for rejecting Jesus. And, and, And we believe that judgment happened there when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. So he's saying, listen, this generation that rejected me, they have a special, we'll say, punishment for them. Because think about it. I mean, Jesus only came to earth one time in all of eternity. And at that time, that generation rejected him. And so there's a punishment he's saying for that. And then the second point is that Jesus' followers will experience increased persecution as Christ's return approaches. Now, obviously, we are more nearer to Christ's return now than when they were, so we can see there is more and more persecution coming our way. And again, if we had a time to really pull through some of the details in that Mark 13 passage, um, it would take us a lot more than just a podcast. It'd take (laughs) us a year of podcasts, I think, to get through some of those details. But in in a broad perspective, that's his concern. Jesus' concern is that when he's leaving, he wants the disciples to know kind of what's going to happen after he leaves. What's it going to be like? What are our responsibilities? What are we going to do? So He's kind of giving them a little insight into that. So um, that's just about what's happening there in the Olivet Discourse. Anything from there that's that's that you want to add? Well, you see Jesus' concern for, for his disciples, and you see him...
1: Preparing them yeah, for this next, yeah, this next way in which your God is working in the world after Jesus dies, rises again, ascends to heaven. That God is going to work through His church. He's yeah. going to use these disciples, these apostles, um, as as the human element to 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 begin that church and 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 to to reach the lost world, um, and he, he warns not only the disi- the disciples that he was immediately speaking to that yeah that warning and that caution extends yeah. to us um, to, to be right. ready persecution is is, is going to happen, mm-hmm. um, and also that we need to beware of false teachers. Oh yeah, um, and uh, those were the two charges. But it's interesting as he's wrapping up that his his first his first coming, mm-hmm. um, looking to the end of his first coming. Yeah. He tells us what's going to happen in between his first and second coming. And then as you read through the passage, yeah. you learn how he's going to come again. And it's interesting in Jerusalem, the first time he was rejected mm-hmm. when, he entered, when he entered Jerusalem to complete his ministry in his first coming, yeah. n- nobody's going to have a choice when he comes back the <laughs> second time. He's going to come as king. And where during his first, his first coming, he would come to Jerusalem, of course, every year, Passover, yeah, yeah. but his ministry base was outside Jerusalem. When he comes for the second coming, he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And it's, going, it, it's interesting how this passage ties his first coming, his second coming together, and yeah. what our responsibility and our expectations are in between as yeah. we're living in between those two, yeah, you can't, two advents.
0: You can't say that he didn't give us any teaching and, and, and commands and information yeah. about what we're supposed to do during those times. Um and I think it's, uh, it's also interesting that um, he is, um, you know, he knows that he's going to leave. And so he's giving, if anything, the Olivet Discourse should have, I think, clued in the disciples. Hey, no, he's serious. No, he is going to leave. You know, because at that point, I don't think they really thought, you know, because I mean, that leads into the next one in John 13. The next passage you're going to read, John 13 and 14, where they're asking Jesus, "Where are you going to go, Jesus? Where are you going to go? Can we go with you?" And no, 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 you can't go with me. It's not the point. And and so as we get into John 13, 14, actually, if you wanted to read the whole, uh, I'll, not all of a discourse, the whole farewell discourse, upper room discourse, you can read that John 13. To seventeen, but we only have time for John thirteen <laughs> and fourteen, and we've talked about John thirteen through seventeen in one of the first couple of podcasts we did as we read through the book of John. Um, but the the situation here in the upper room is that the Sanhedrin have made their intentions to kill Jesus. That happened on Wednesday, so they've made their intentions of killing Jesus. Now we reach Thursday, kind of Thursday evening at the Passover meal. That's kind of the setting we find ourselves in is this upper room discourse, well-known passage. We hear a lot of it uh, read at uh, funerals, uh, especially the John 14 uh, passage as well. You know, and some of the things that are in this passage, and, and I'm going to read a few things, but uh, I wanted to knock it over to Matt. What do you have about this passage that really speaks to you? There's a lot. There's tons of good stuff in this passage. But, but what about 13 and 14?
1: Well, you see Jesus' heart, and you see his his love for his disciples. Here, uh, he never stops teaching them, even to the final hours wow, of his life really before point. he dies. He never stops teaching, yeah. not just through his words, but through his actions. At the beginning of the passage, he takes he puts on the um, what you could maybe say the form of a servant. He takes the towel, he ties it around his yeah, waist. Can you
0: imagine that? By the way, yeah. I mean, I've i thought about that. How would you feel? Like like here's Jesus. Of course, I guess it would be hard because. Um, we could put ourselves back in the text, but how could we put ourselves back there not knowing what we already know now about Jesus that would be hard um, but but how, I mean well I think you, Peter uh, kind of he, he was
1: he probably spoke what a lot of the disciples were feeling yeah, they and did. he said absolutely <laughs> he said yeah, he, you got to love Peter and he, he he says what often we think and to go putting it, and he he says, "Yeah, Jesus, you, you, I should be washing your feet." But then Jesus says, "What I'm doing, you don't understand. What you don't understand." And he says, "If I don't wash you, you have no share with me." And then Peter, you know, he's just he's up and down. He's like, "Well, then, then don't just wash my feet. You know, wash me from head yeah, to toe. Yeah, like, yeah, know, I want to be, me. I want to be all in." Uh, but Jesus not only takes the form of a servant, he does the work of a servant in washing his disciples' feet, and he's he's teaching them even through his actions. That they are to be servants, and um, and even until the very final hours, Jesus is teaching them how to pray, and he's he's he's, yeah. he's teaching them how how to respond when you know when Peter tries to lob a guy's ear off. He's teaching and teaching and teaching, and and that comes out of his his love and care and compassion for uh, for his disciples. Yeah, as
0: much teaching as he did constantly with them, and they were with them all the time. You'd think they'd get. Some of the messages, but it seems like he's repeating the same things yep. and again that that's wrong, but that's just something that that, that is good as a, as a good teacher and uh, to me one of the place one of the uh, things I like best in this passage is the fact that he talks about the Holy Spirit and he says, it is so important that you understand that if I don't leave, then the Holy Spirit cannot come. I have to leave so he will come and this passage here in chapter fourteen Verse 26, I like this verse, it says, But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, He will teach you everything and remind you of everything that I have told you. And it's kind of very specific because the Holy Spirit is is going to remind us of everything that Jesus has, has spoken to us, has told us. So the, the Holy Spirit kind of is speaking on behalf of Jesus. He's helping to remind us of what Jesus has already said, what the Word of God has already said. So even as Jesus is leaving earth, he's not leaving earth completely because he's leaving the Holy Spirit behind to be our guide, to help us, to, to guide us and instruct us. And if he did not leave, then we wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. And, and I think that's the struggle that Peter is not getting. He's like, why do you want to leave? Stay here with us, stay here with us. He's like, I have to leave because if I don't, then the Holy Spirit's not going to come. And uh, sometimes we don't get that, and sometimes we just don't realize the power that the Holy Spirit has, um, because today the Holy Spirit is functioning uh, for us as the church, much like Jesus did for the apostles here uh, during his his Passion Week and in, in, in his ministry. There, he was the Holy Spirit for them. We'll say, but yeah. but. And immediately,
1: with that promise that Jesus made to his disciples, that he'd bring um, to, to their remembrance everything that he had taught, yeah, there's an application for us as, as the Holy Spirit yeah, teaches us through our reading of God's Word. Yeah. There's immediate, an immediate, almost immediate application for these disciples because we think, well, how did, how did John remember all these details about Jesus? You know, years later know, when writing the, the gospel of John is because he wasn't only relying on his, his brain, which would be good because I I forget a lot of things, <laughs> but there was that supernatural enablement yeah. from the Holy Spirit that, point. that brought to you know, the mind of John and, and Matthew and, and Luke, <laughs> all the things that Jesus had done. it, when you read Luke chapter 1 and, and how Luke opens his his letter, he says that he's putting together an orderly account yeah, of yeah. what Jesus yep. did. That was through the power of the Holy Spirit bringing to his remembrance the things that Jesus had done and that yeah. Jesus had taught. So there's an application for us, but it also helps us to understand the power that was behind the New Testament that we have today that we can learn of the teachings of You know, of Jesus. and I'm so glad
0: we have John's gospel, too, because he's he's the one that always was questioning everything, it seems, and he gives us the why behind yep. the whole story. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are basically chronicling the story, giving additional details, but you always have these questions like, why did he do it? Why did he do it here? Why now? Why now? And John comes along and lays out and says, this is why, because Jesus did it this way. And, and he really puts a better understanding. Can you imagine if we didn't have the gospel of John? We just had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It'd be a very, uh, very simple narrative story. Not a lot of theology behind it. Uh, so I'm thankful for John and for John's gospel. Um, again, written probably 30 years later, after all these other gospel writers had already written, he's reflecting back. There's a lot to be said about someone in their old age who sits back and reflects on their life and shows you what's important and what's not important. And I think we need to key in on that when we talk about John. Well, the last section is um, Matthew. It's split up into two, uh, two days. Um, Matthew 26, 36 through Matthew 27, 66. And uh, this is, uh, again, a, a rather large portion. This starts with the Garden Gethsemane and the betrayal. Then you've got the three, excuse me, the six trials that happened, three Jewish trials, and then three Roman trials. And again, if you were to read a chronology, you'd find them all there. Um, and, and it goes right in and talks about all those, the crucifixion. Uh, so you'll have reading from that. Is there anything from that larger passage? We only have a few minutes left, I know. Um, is there anything from that larger passage that, that you want to highlight, anything specific? Well, specifically um, in Matthew 26, you see the human
1: side of Jesus, Jesus being being God yeah. and man and and you see Jesus being God knowing foreknowing all of the all of the suffering oh, yeah. that he that mm. that he, he would be subject to. And then the human side of that is <clears throat> dealing with the emotions that would come with that amount of suffering. <laughs> so when Jesus in verse thirty-six of Excuse me, verse thirty-eight of chapter 20, twenty-six. He says, "My soul is very sorrowful, mm. even to death." Mm-hmm. Um, you, we we see the sorrow of Jesus even before he died on the cross, and and when in Hebrews it says that we have a high priest who is yeah. who is able to sympathize with us, um, we see that Jesus has gone through some of the deepest sorrow. Mm. So even during his death, we see how, how Jesus can sympathize with us when we go through times of sorrow. Um, and it, it's not a cold, detached, empathetic, I feel bad for you when Jesus sees us going through difficult times. Um, Jesus has, has walked
0: the same path uh, that we have. And he knew what was coming. And, and I love that relationship that he plays on with the father. And he says, Father, is there any way we can do this differently? Is there any way I don't have to be on a cross and be separated from you for for where you turn your back on me? Is there any way else? But he says, no less, you know, that's part of your plan. That's part of your plan. And even at the very end, Jesus is still following God's plan, even though he may not understand all of it, if we could actually say that about the Trinity, um, even if he may not understand all of it, but yet he's following through with it. And and that's a good lesson for us as well, because a lot of times we don't understand why God's doing something in our life, but we still have a responsibility to follow Him. We still have a responsibility to be faithful to Him and be loyal to Him. Now, the last little bit of reading that you'll get is on Saturday, and it's just a brief little section of Matthew. And and I think really it's the only thing that happened on Saturday of the Passion Week where the guards are... um, um, Well, I'll read it to you here because we just have a few minutes left. Matthew 27... um, 62. It has, it's a long chapter, 62. It says, The next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, Sir, we remember that that deceiver once said that while he was still alive, after three days I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent the disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off or excuse me, will be worse off than we were at first. Again, they're constantly worried about themselves. So selfish. Pilate replied, take the guards and secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. So they actually helped prove the authenticity of the resurrection. Because again, they were worried the disciples were going to come steal the body of Jesus. And then they were going to say, oh, he has resurrected when they knew he actually stole the body. So they placed guards at the tomb. So they help seal the authenticity because you can't get through the guards. The guards are protecting Jesus, protecting his body, so that his body will be resurrected. and I think it's kind of ironic here you know it seems like they really did believe that Jesus would do what he says because they were they were willing to put their faith in it, they were willing to the, to put their money where their mouth is and, 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 and there
1: are, there are skeptics <laughs> that when they're talking about Jesus' resurrection and they're trying to make arguments against Jesus' yeah. resurrection, this is one of the primary arguments that they would make is that Jesus' body was stolen, as if exactly. they've come across a new a, a new perspective on <laughs> on how this could have happened. Right. But this was the right. concern yep. before Jesus was even buried. Exactly. Was that was that someone would would, would, would steal his body. So the weight of the Roman Empire. Yeah, was dedicated to securing Jesus' body.
0: Uh, you think about it that way, man. I, yeah. mean, I mean, yeah, it's what happened. I mean, they were dedicated to keeping his body safe. But yet you look at these religious leaders and, and they were willing. So I almost think, did, did, did they really believe? Because, I mean, here they're putting their money where their mouth is. They're saying, hey, he said after three days he's going to rise again. We need to make sure he does it. As if you're going to stop the supernatural resurrection of Jesus. But nonetheless, they still try. Uh, you know, and and I look at that and I say, maybe some of them really did believe. Maybe they just didn't want to make that profession at the time. We know later on in the book of Acts that a lot of priests and a lot of religious leaders do accept Christ. We kind of get this idea that they all hated him and none of them accepted him, but some of them did. But here at the very end, I'm I'm, I'm wondering, did did some of them really believe because they were willing enough to put their, uh, uh, to ask, and what an ask, you know, what an ask for the Roman government, hey, Post guard church, we're not sure if this guy's going to rise again from the grave. That's
1: a good question. It's almost as if they're saying, we wouldn't put anything past him.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> this, is <laughs> and, uh, this is true. Um,
0: this is true. This is true.
1: It's easy for us knowing the end of the story. Um, but, you know, we, we think about during this time, the disciples were, were holed away. Um, they didn't know what to do next. Um, they, I wonder if they were thinking, maybe Jesus, when he was t- talking about rising again, maybe that was another one, of his parables. Did he really mean that? Did he really Maybe mean so. that literally? Yeah. So you have this time of uncertainty, and then on Sunday, yeah. everything changes.
0: Yeah. Saturday must have been a really emotional-filled day. Um, but Sunday's coming, <laughs> and it came in a way that I think the apostles were surprised. Jesus told them it was coming this way, but they were so surprised. Now, next week's reading, you'll actually read some things. You'll actually read a passage on Easter. It's actually from Isaiah. So next week's readings, we'll have a full week of readings as we talk about resurrection all the way through to what happens after the resurrection and ascension and the church starts in the book of Acts. So that's for next week. I hope you've enjoyed our time. So that's all we have for this week. We'll see you next week.